you're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, I'm joined by two of the co-founders of ChainGuard, Dan Lorink and Kim Lewandowski. They are building a company focusing on tooling and processes for locking down your software supply chain. We first talk about what that even is, because it's a buzzword right now, and not everyone's on the same page on what securing your supply chain even means in the world of software. Then we jump into base images for containers, which you've likely heard me talk about a lot in the last few years. Their project Wolfie, spelled W-O-L-F-I, has the potential to change how we build our containers, and I'm very, very interested in seeing how it's received by the community. We talk a lot about Wolfie in this episode, mostly because I'm just super excited about it and the potential for it, and we even thought about calling it a Wolfie show, but I decided against it because the show has good info on how ChainGuard considers this to be one of the core pillars of software supply chain security, so I kept it a little bit more of a generic title. Now, I'll be honest, we could have 10 full episodes on all the parts of software supply chain security, and this one really focuses mostly on that base image that you have to decide on, because that's one of the areas that you kind of have to start with if you really want to lock down what the end result's going to be in your software supply chain. And so we only scratch the surface of the whole software supply chain security world. So hopefully this show is still a good base for you to take action on improving your security posture as an engineering team. And I'll likely have to have more software supply chain shows in the future. So please reach out on Twitter or Discord or my Patreon with questions or ideas on topics in this area if you're involved at all with the software supply chain. Please enjoy this episode with Dan and Kim of ChainGuard. Hello. This week, I'm excited because security, one of my favorite topics, and I have some security pros on the call. I say the call. It's a stream. I'm old fashioned. You can see the gray. All right. So we have Dan Lawrence, the CEO of ChainGuard. We're going to talk all about this stuff, what that even is. We got Kim Landowski over on the right there. Yeah, it's on the right. She's the head of product at ChainGuard. And let's get into it. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having, Thanks for having us. us. Yeah. All right, Kim, we were talking before the show. How did ChainGuard get started? What's the backstory here? Because it suddenly existed one day. Everyone was telling me about it and I didn't know what it was. Yeah, great question. I think the very origins of the story, our CEO, Matt Moore, was barbecuing spending a lot of time barbecuing and trying to figure out what was next in the horizon for him. And him and Dan started texting each other. We'd all worked together previously at Google. Dan and I were working together at Google at the time, him on the engineering side, me on the product side. 
I think the two of them kicked off the conversation. They're like, hey, what are you doing next? And then one thing led to another. We saw the opportunity to help companies with their software supply chains and help secure them. We had started several of the projects that we'll probably talk about today in the open source yeah. community to help with this issue. And then, uh, yeah, one thing led to another and we kicked off the company. We're about a year old today. Nice. So we've got this idea around supply chain. This is kind of the title. And Dan, can you break down what is and isn't? I think actually I care more about what isn't in a software supply chain. What, when you think of that, what is that exactly? She said, what isn't in it? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. What <laughs> isn't in the supply chain? Hardware is not in the software supply chain. Uh, All right. That's, a <laughs> great that's only answer. partially true, too. That's it's a kind of funny joke, too. We get tons of random emails and marketing and sales and VCs reaching out thinking that we're making software for physical supply chains to help secure those. Physical mm. supply chains are also a mess in the last couple of years during the pandemic. Right. <laughs> so that's also a very hot field, but I'm, uh, we're doing the other one. So we are doing security for software supply chains. So you're so not a bunch of security, physical security guards that stand next to buildings made, so making software. You don't do that. It's okay. different kind of containers that they're worried about. I'm sure you get a lot of these, this confusion too. For sure. For sure. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please continue. Yeah. So software supply chain is basically all of the code, all of the third-party code, all of the first-party code written to your company, all the tools you use to build all of that. Everything going back to kind of the first tool used to build up all of your tool chains all the way out until your code makes it to production. Everybody has one. Most people couldn't write down the entire thing. I often like to think of this is like one of those fun interview questions, you know, they used to ask, type google.com into your browser, press enter, explain what happens. I think, you know, you could do a similar one of like, there are containers with Kubernetes in them on the internet. Walk back as far as you can to how those got there and all of the people that were involved in the process. And I think it would scare a lot of folks when they realize exactly how many steps and people they're trusting in that process. Yeah. I love that you're pointing out like it is actually pretty common for us to uh, very few people to actually know everything in that workflow. We've talked about on the show often that most people don't know all their dependencies. Like they just, they don't even realize all the complexity that goes into their app needing things. So when we talk about supply chain, it, and I mean, there's concepts, there are things that we, those of us that are trying to pay attention to security expect you to do. For those that are getting started with this, what are the, some of the things that you, when you first walk into a company that's like, help us secure things, like help us make it better. What are some of the first things that you all are looking at? Yeah, I think there's a lot of noise going on in this field in the last couple of years, especially because of all of the high profile attacks. And I think that's generated a lot of confusion and folks are worried about a lot of things. I think the biggest worry we often hear is about the security of open source code and attacks like, you know, a lot of the attacks that are triggered after the log for shell of vulnerability and log for J help bring that stuff to the spotlight. But I think where we try to get folks to start out is actually, you know, inside of your own organization, inside of your own company, there's a whole supply chain there too. And getting your own house in order, figuring out how your builds happen, which teams are responsible, who has root permissions to you know push to these artifact managers goes a long way and it helps you figure out which external dependencies you actually have. So that way you can start to secure those. So we like to start out internally, I think, and then work our way backwards. Nice. Some of this was, uh, I was just going to add, like yeah. so you're asking about the origin, like some of this, like I think inspired Dan back in the day when he was building like Minikube under his desktop and realizing that, you know, this is a piece of software that's going out and running his route to a bunch of people. And, you know, this is a machine under my desktop that we haven't secured or done it, haven't done anything with. 
And so that's a good place where we see for folks to start kind of taking a look at is just their build systems. Like, how is that thing being treated? Yeah, for sure. That it seems like one of the weak areas and based on the last few years of vulnerability announcements and corporate disclosures, it seems like that's a common attack area too, is just exactly, I personally see a lot of sort of what I would call legacy at this point, legacy build systems or things that they're almost like, it's not broke, so don't touch it, right? It's still, it still builds. So we don't have to really know what it does. Just leave it alone. And it's kind of been a theme of mine this year is to rant to people on the internet about, you know, let's modernize this. Let's maybe bring in new tools to replace the tools and maybe update a lot of this code. Because I think a lot of this stuff can go back, especially on these monoliths, like going back years, possibly over a decade for how they get their software out of a dev's hands and onto a server. And how in the world does anyone account for all those steps and ensure integrity and all that stuff that we can get into. When you talk about a lot of this stuff. So on the ChainGuard website, by the way, I just want to mention there's a, I read this this week, <laughs> well done on the title, all about that base image. So if everyone wants to go, you can go to chainguard.dev and you can actually view a white paper. I feel like this is like a manifesto of mine a little bit because that paper is, talks about a lot of the problems that I'm passionate about base images and that how it, like your security, that's one of the places you start. Is that how you approach this? Like it's obviously there's lots of other complexities and things, but this is like one of the areas you focus on? Yeah, the base image is kind of that, the first piece of code you grab when you're developing in a containerized environment, that from line in your Docker file. And there's a lot of choices and it's not always clear where the base image you grab is coming from. A lot of organizations will try to maintain their own golden base image, but they're usually not building these from scratch themselves. They're usually grabbing another one and then throwing some of their custom stuff on top of it which is great, but the more of those you have and the more layers there are, the longer it takes your security fixes to percolate their way from you know, the upstream package distribution you're using, then to the base image on Docker Hub, and then into your organization's base image, and then out to your application. Each one of those hops can take weeks, which causes a whole bunch of noise when you start doing stuff like vulnerability scans on your containers. Yeah. And you talk a lot about that in there, about the noise of just managing the chaos of vulnerabilities in your software. And I think I, in my DockerCon talk this year, I kind of ranted about that. If the count of total vulnerabilities that a team is trying to manage is over 20, I feel like that just doesn't happen. Like I don't, 20 isn't a magic number, but when you scan and you get 50, no one deals with that real well, right. if at all, right? Yeah, there's a common criticism when we talk about this too, like, well, how many of those are real? You know, a lot of these aren't actually going to affect you and only like 1% or 2% of all the CVs in the wild can actually be exploited and a bunch of stuff like that. But still when there's 50 or 100 or 200 to your point, how do you know which one in there is the one that's going to affect you? It's much better to be at a place with the quiet, I, I think in the, that paper he's the term quiet base images, much better to be in a place where there's a quiet one and the alert, when the alert does go off, you know, it's something real and your team addresses it. It's just like right. noisy alerting in you know, production hygiene. You don't have alerts of pagers that go off constantly because people get numb to those effects and stop paying attention when there is a real outage. I like to think of these vulnerability alerts the same way. I'm imagining that Big Lebowski meme of, well, that's like your opinion, man, because that's that basically sums up every conversation that I have with people around scanners and vulnerabilities is we all end up with opinions about what's a real threat, threat what's not what these numbers mean, what they don't mean, why two scanners are different numbers, right? Which scanner do we trust? Which vulnerabilities do we pay attention to? And there's a lot of complexity. We've had multiple shows. We've had Slim, the Slim, Docker Slim team, Slim.ai on talking about 
trying to shrink down your images. And you all announced this sort of something that I feel like should have happened years ago and I'm very excited about. So could someone like give me the elevator pitch for Wolfie, great name, had no idea that it was a tiny, a tiny octopus, right? Isn't that what it means or something? I had no idea. What does it mean to be an undistro and what problems is this trying to solve? Sure. I think you, before we got on, you started chatting a bit about your DockerCon talk. Now you went through all the base images and there's problems with all of them and none are perfect. And you kind of have to pick your, choose your poison or whatever the term is there. With Wolfie, we try to take a step back and figure out like, what would be an ideal Linux distribution for containers. You know, containers have one now, they're everywhere, whether folks realize it or not. And nobody's really tried try to think through Linux distributions and what they would look like if you just assume containers are everywhere. Docker files were amazing. You know, when Docker first came out, there were a way to get every you know, Linux distribution existing ones into containers and give people a familiar environment. But nobody took advantage of that yet, Linux distribution side. Yeah. So that's Wolfie. Wolfie is our Linux distribution where we rebuilt it from scratch. Every package comes from us. We are the upstream, like we're not building on top of any existing one. We build all of the packages ourselves. We try to combine all of the good parts of all of the existing distributions for containers. I like to think of it as a mixture of Alpine, Debian, and DistroList, like the good parts of all of them without any of the bad parts. I basically, when this came out, I realized I was going to have to update that talk in that GitHub repo because <laughs> I did I did all that analysis of like Distro versus Ubuntu versus, or DistroList rather versus Ubuntu and the pros and cons and the a point in time CVE count of all these different ways to build images. And most people, I'm just going to, paint a brush over most people don't have that kind of patience like I do. Like they will not, this is not a work that they enjoy doing. And it's to many people, it's like plumbing, right? It's just like, I just want to, someone to tell me this is fine. And I just need to move on because it doesn't, it's not my app. It's not the reason I exist as a team or as a company usually. Why? I love that you talk, I'll call it a distro by the way, because to me, that means it kind of legitimizes it as this real independent thing, not just a rehash of something because we've had lots of these ideas, right? We've had build packs. We've had so many different ideas around how do we get the right things in our software and ship it to the server. And I feel like so many of those are either, they're either really, they claim to be super secure, but they're really challenging to deal with and they're a little esoteric and they're kind of edge case and it's hard to convince people to use it or it's popular, it's huge and it's full of vulnerabilities. And I feel like there's not really a happy medium. And I'm, I'm rooting for you and Wolfie for that sort of middle of the road approach of solves most problems easy, comes out near zero or zero v CVEs. Like that seems like a utopia. Can you tell me like, how does exactly do the packages get in there? It sounds like it uses APK. That's the Alpine package manager for those listening. Yeah. So there were, there were a couple of questions that I forgot to answer your one about undistro. So I'll do that first. And yeah, and then you said, oh, I'll do distro, but it's kind of an undistro. You know, a Linux distribution traditionally is a whole bunch of packages and then Linux. If you've ever seen that whole meme of like, you know, actually what you're referring to is Linux is the GNU slash Linux thing. That's actually correct, you know, in most cases, and you're not using Linux, you're using the Linux kernel plus a bunch of packages that come from someone else. In this case, those packages come from us, right? We build them from source. It's a good example there is OpenSSL, right? When you grab OpenSSL and Debian or Ubuntu or Alpine, you're not getting that directly from the OpenSSL maintainers. You're getting that from a distribution, which is taking the OpenSSL source code, applied a couple patches, whether they're security or customization or something like that, and then thrown that into their package manager. In this case, we're the ones that do that. We take the upstream source code, build that, and put that into our packages, which like you said, yeah, they're APKs, packages from the Alpine package manager. That's the format we use. 
just like Ubuntu and Debian both use the .deb package format. You know, we use the APK one here. Yeah. The undistro part, though, is because we don't actually package Linux. That's my take on it. You know, it's a container. Containers right. don't have a Linux kernel inside of it. So it's a distribution. It's a Linux distribution without the Linux. So it's not technically correct to call it a distribution. It's everything except for Linux. So that's why we call it an undistro. It does get us into the what is Linux conversation, which yeah. we're going to skip. But those of us have been around a while, you know, is it the kernel? Is it the distribution? Is it all the other? Is it the package manager? Is it? Yeah. And these are things that like a lot of developers just don't want to mess with, right? Like they don't even distinguish the difference between a kernel and a package manager and a distribution, which is fine. Like I actually am okay with that because yeah. not everyone needs to like the goal now. I mean, it's we should be able to let an engineer develop software and not have to know how to build their own kernel. Wasn't true 20 years ago, but you know, we've moved on. And with this, it sounds like you, you're declarative by out front, right? Like, I think it's like YAML based or something like people add their packages and cause that's one of my big beefs too, is that I don't have a good apt process like I do for package JSON for Node.js. I don't have a very clear way to add packages to my OS. And it's always been a big beef of mine. So I feel like this might check off multiple boxes. Like not only is it start out CVE low or zero, it's got a declarative way of setting packages, which I didn't have before. And you're doing all of that. You're packaging. So does that mean like every APK package that is in Alpine is in Wolfie? So we're packaging them all ourselves. We don't have everything though, right? And okay. This is one of the benefits of doing our own distro. You know, we don't have desktop packages, right? We don't have uh, okay. you know, the, the kernel packages. We don't Drivers. have all the stuff to run it in other environments, right. right? This is really container-centric today, right? You know, it can expand. We can add more packages over time. But if you just look at the subset of packages that get installed in containers and are appropriate for server-side environments, you get to skip GTK, you get to skip KDE, you get to skip all of the stuff that you hold in a desktop environment. And it makes the problem a lot easier. The declarative piece too is interesting. Most traditional package managers are designed for these long running bare metal server environments where stuff gets installed and certain versions get pinned and other packages get upgraded and you can't lose data through throughout any of that time. But in containers, you don't ever actually patch things. You just delete the container image and build a new one from scratch. And so the package manager, if you design it for this world, it's actually a lot simpler. You don't have to deal with any of the state transformations or complex upgrade downgrade version conflict scenarios. So you can make something a lot faster, a lot simpler, and a lot easier at the same time. Yeah. And we could, I mean, honestly, we could have made this whole show about base images because I, I made a whole DockerCon talk about Let's it. Keep going. Let's keep yeah. It's very compelling. So I'm basically telling people, check out Wolfie. Uh, the, a lot of this is open source, right? So I'm trying to figure out what, like Wolfie, the idea is open source, but you only have so many base images to start or something like that, or so many designs or pre-built images. Yeah. So the way it is, there's a whole package. There, there's a repo. It's github.com slash Wolfie hyphen dev slash OS. And that repo contains all of the packages that we have, right? And those are built using our own tooling as well. So it's more YAML because you need YAML to be cloud native. And... <laughs> Heard it here first, people. But yeah, you can find the YAML file we use to build OpenSSL and the YAML file we use to build Python, all of that. And that uses another custom tool we wrote called Melange, which is the sports reproducible builds and cross compilation and all of that by default. Yeah. So each one of these YAML files is a single package. There's a lot in there. Okay. Um, but you can add a new package here with a new YAML file. And these then become part of the distribution. You can install these packages. They get built using our build system and signed and all of that fun stuff and uploaded. Then, like, this is just kind of, you know, the package repository. Then these actually get used in images. And that's the whole suite of chain guard images that we build from 
the Wolfie distribution. And so that's another series of GitHub repositories. But that's, yeah, Chainyard, github.com, Chainyard images, and then you'll find one for Nginx, one for Python, one for all this other stuff built using our actual image composition tool called Apco. And uh, yeah, those are, again, a YAML file each with a list of the packages that you need in there, all of the other kind of Docker filing metadata. And because this is all declarative and simple and we're not running compilation and stuff as part of it, you don't need Docker to build these things. You don't need any privileged environment. You can just create these images super quick in any CI system. You don't need to do any of the Docker host path mounting to get it inside of a container or privilege mode or any of that stuff. You can go right from YAML to image in a registry reproducibly and quickly. Yeah. That's really interesting. I have so many questions on that. But I was just going to say, we're also creating the SBOM file. I don't know if you've covered SBOMs on this show before, but so we're creating those right at the build time because we know exactly what's going into these images and the SBOM can be used later. for other Yeah, things. very nice. <laughs> I definitely know that we've talked about it. I think we talked about it maybe when Docker added it to their command line for yeah. Docker desktop because that was kind of like, it's been around for a long time and I work in an area where we have 12 military bases. So government knows all about supply chain, building materials and all that stuff. But yeah, the rest of the, I think the rest of the software world is coming into that, that world and realizing that that's a necessary thing for auditing and compliance and stuff like that. But that's really cool because I think we're all looking for easier ways to build our images and also I don't know anyone that hasn't probably asked me at some point, whether it was a, in a consulting gig or in class where they're like, how do I make my image smaller? How do I make it? safe and secure and how do i figure out what's insecure about it and i feel like this hits a lot of those different points so maybe we'll have to have like a wolfie you know when there's a major another major announcement we'll have a wolfie show and because this is the thing close to my heart and i feel like maybe someday i just need to delete that talk i did at docker con about all the shitty underlayers of all the things i was trying to do and just say add a slide at the end yeah just use wolf yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, you could have done all that or you could have just done this one thing. Yeah, because most people aren't going to do that. Now, there's this other thing on your website that I'm very interested about as well, Chain Guard Enforce. So, Kim, what this sounds like something that I want, but what exactly would like Git Enforce, what is that all about? Like, what are we doing here with Git and Kubernetes and stuff with this? Yeah, so Chain Guard Enforce is a whole um, risk uh, platform for big organizations or any organization. So, one good use case is assume you decided to use Wolfie or a, one of these hardened base images. You want to make sure that's actually what's being enforced and going into your production system. So you could use Chain Guard Enforce to set up that rule. We check the rule and then throw an alert or block the deployment from going out. And so it's kind of like the Chain Guard images. We're starting all the way towards the, is it the left? Yeah, the left of the supply chain <laughs> where the developers are in Chain Garden Force is sitting more on the right right now. So yeah, lots of different use cases around maybe just signing. We haven't talked about signing too much, but signing's an important thing coming either from developer signatures or for that build system. Maybe you've hardened and you want to make sure only certain things get deployed that have been built by a hardened build system and signed by that build system. So you could write that policy up and enforce it. And one cool feature about Chain Garden Force too is we have it's running, we call continuous verification. So it's not just that deploy time check. So a lot of things, a lot of times we see what's happening is like you'll scan for vulnerabilities or you want to make sure there's no critical vulnerabilities being deployed, but then, but then you forget about it after it's running like in production or maybe you have something running in production that hasn't been rebuilt in six months. And so. Yeah, you want you want to send an alert or have some functionality that makes you rebuild images, for example, to get like the latest packages. So it's not only just doing the deploy time checks, but watching what's happening in your running environments too. Okay. 
Yeah, because I think that it almost feels like a maturity model of the first thing I do is I add an image scanner, but it's usually only during build time or maybe when it's pushed to a registry. And maybe I'm lucky enough that I actually eventually get a registry that has built-in auto-scanning on a regular basis. And then eventually people get to, okay, now we're going to be looking at our servers in real time and scanning that stuff. Is that how you normally see these things progress where production scanning is maybe like intermediate level. Yeah, I think, I mean, we're trying to tackle the entire supply chain too. So have checks along that, of course, the whole shift left thing. So try to catch as, as things early as we can before you even progress through like the supply chain. Yeah. Okay. So to chain guard enforces, this is a beta. I think we, I asked before the show, this is a beta that people can sign up for. Yeah. So it's, I think it's in GA. Maybe we need to update the website, but we have a free trial program. You have to fill out a form today and then we create an invite code tied to your email address and then you can kick the tires for 30 days. The onboarding process goes through using an unkind. So doing like a local development and creating one of those policies, enforcing it, seeing how it runs. And then, yeah, if you like what you see or have feedback, definitely reach out. Yeah. The forms on the site. I'd say one other, yeah, cool feature that we could chat about this is one of the big problems that we see we talked about this early is people don't know what's running in their production system so enforce actually gives you a view of everything that's running and then you can start tracing things back if it's signed like where exactly it came from which repo did this come from what developers committed code to this and some of the added benefits are that or when you see a big breach i think the log for j log for shell is the one example i like to use is people don't even know if they were impacted they don't know if that thing was running in their production systems so then the time to remediation was weeks, if not like still unknown if people are impacted by that. So with ChainGuard and Forest, like we have this view now of actually what's running in all the clusters. So remediation becomes like a matter of seconds versus having an entire team scrape their GitHub UI to see if Log4j appears anywhere in their source repository. Right. I always find that GitHub is pretty challenging when you're talking about dozens of repos, especially now that we're doing infrastructure as code and maybe you're throwing your automation YAML in there with the repos and trying to get a sense of what do I have that eventually makes itself to production. And sometimes I feel like, yeah, just scanning production, even though I consider it an advanced thing, it might just be the easiest thing to do. I think we've kind of a lot of, you know, 15 years ago, I felt like we were putting scanning software scanners on servers as a part of a security requirement from a security team and containers. I feel like maybe got us out of that a little bit. I don't know. Maybe teams are, are still doing it, but I felt like a lot of people were like, well, it's contained. So maybe we don't need these scanners scanning. And, and then of course we didn't have those tools yet, I guess, at the beginning of the Docker evolution, we didn't really have good tools to see what's in all the containers. We've got some questions. They're pretty, pretty good te technical questions. Could you discuss how ChainGuard and the cosine distroless images can be used with Intoto? I can't find a lot of information on using Intoto run uh, with a pipeline to generate and sign Providence. Yeah, I can try to take that one. So Intoto is a project in the CNCF around supply chain security. It's been around for a while since before okay. the topic got cool. And Intoto has a couple different concepts, but one of them is called attestations. This is a, basically you can think of it as a file format that contains a bunch of metadata about what happens inside of a build. I'm terrible at vocabulary, but it contains the inputs, the step that gets run, and then the outputs. So you might say, my inputs were this Git repository at this commit. I ran make foo inside of that. And then I got this binary at the end with this hash or something like that. And you can define it in total pipeline that says these are the three or four steps that must be run. This one has to be done by Brett. And then he hands me a repo and I run another command to validate the test pass. And then I give that to Kim and she does the final production deployment or something like that. 
you can write this in what's called an in total layout file, saying that is how our artifacts make it to production. And then if you instrument your build system, like GitHub Actions or Jenkins or something, to capture those steps, you get these actual attestations saying what happened. And then you can validate that using Intoto. Like that Intoto run thing is usually the step that actually captures that metadata and produces you know, the Intoto, the set of Intoto attestations that you can validate to make sure the, the right set of steps were followed. We produce those Intoto attestations for the distroless images that we build. They're called provenance files. That's the, the type of format that we use. You can have a whole bunch of different types. You have test runs, yeah. scans, or security analysis or something. The ones specific to build are called provenance attestations. But then it's up to you to kind of write those into your policy and decide if that's those are just one of the steps that might happen in your pipeline. And then yeah. use Chain Garden Force. <laughs> and use Chain Garden Force. Is that the, are we going to say that's the easy button for implementing these things? <laughs> I mean, that's why we built it. It's like you, yeah. you got to define all these different things that you trust in your environments, but then you need a way to kind of bring down the hammer and make sure that's what you're following. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have a go-to set of tools for recommending, like after you image scan and after you lock down maybe some like infrastructure as code tools so that people can't just do whatever they want on servers. There was this idea that there was going to be a push, it was going to be push button easy to prevent unsigned images from being in production or like some sort of validation there. Is that something that has gotten easier. I haven't really, basically I'm not up to date and I need help. Is there a specific tool that's used here or is it just enforce adds Kubernetes functionality or uh, what's going on here? Like, give me the details. <laughs> How do I prevent these from getting in, uh, onto production? These, you know, maybe vulnerable images or unsigned images or whatever, what's going on there? So yeah, there's a bunch of different things you could control for and every organization set up a little bit different, but it kind of step one, when somebody rolls out something like chain guard enforces you. You install it into your cluster and it looks at what's running. And by default, all you see is, you know, the container image, which is like a long URL and a hash. And, you know, most tools kind of stop there at the level right. of visibility they have. There's a bunch of examples of, you know, showing how to control that stuff came from the right registry. And, you know, maybe you have like a little regex saying only let stuff that comes from my ECR or GCR bucket make it to prod. But Enforce can look farther than that, right? You can think of looking inside of the container and then joining up with other data to see how it got there. So you would then instrument your build system and install like a GitHub Actions plugin or a Jenkins plugin or a Circle CI plugin or whatever build system you're using. And then now we can see the container digest and we can see a bunch of information about where containers were built. And you can then restrict not just to, you know, the registry that something happens to live in. If you pull one thing from Docker Hub and now you've opened up all the Docker Hub or something, you can restrict to what build system was used to build something. And so earlier on, you were talking about legacy build systems and stuff like that. Folks have hundreds thousands of build systems at some large companies and there's new ones being created every day and shut down every day. And that sprawl is a pretty big problem. So you typically want to have a few highly secure build systems rather than tons of not secure. So at that point, you figure out all the build system stuff is coming from and then start to put in policies in place. So stuff can't come from the internet. A developer can't have the wrong coop control context set up and accidentally deploy a Helm chart they meant to put into Minikube or Docker desktop straight into production by accident. Only stuff that's been through those steps and been vetted by your CI pipeline can make it to prod. And this all works with capturing all of this like in Toto style provenance and attestation metadata automatically for you. So you can see exactly which commit stuff was built at, exactly which version of the dependencies are inside of your production containers, and then block vulnerable stuff when it gets found later. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. The blocking being the primary purpose here. You mentioned scanning on servers. Is this like a trivi scan? It sounds like there's a lot more than that going on, but 
are you picking industry scanners for like CV stuff? Yeah, so there, there's sort of the shift happening with SBOMs, where you know SBOMs contain the list of everything inside of you know, a binary, a service, a container, or something like that. And so the role of scanners is starting to change a little bit. Scanners kind of before did two things. They would you point it at a container, it would crawl through that, figure out everything that they could find in there, whether it's packages, old binaries, jar files, something like that. And then they would take that information and query a bunch of like CVE or vulnerability databases. SBOMs kind of let you skip that first step, right? If the person yeah. giving you the software tells you what's inside of it, you don't need to guess anymore. You don't need to like crack the thing open and look around and compare hashes and everything. But you can still do that. You can still look for stuff that's not found. But uh, you know, SBOMs sort of short circuit that process. So a lot of these scanners now let you just pass in an SBOM instead of passing in a container. Because the end result is you just want to know, are there any vulnerabilities inside of this stuff? And so if you get a really good SBOM from the person that built the software, because they know exactly what was in there, then you can skip the scanning portion and just go right to kind of querying these vulnerability databases. So yeah, we support the, all the stuff really comes from the National Vulnerability Database, the NVD for the most part, right. which is like the center short source of truth for CVEs. It just turns out that's really hard to query. So there's a bunch of like indexes that other folks like Trivi and Gripe and Sneak have built up on top of that to let you query it in more friendly ways. We support all of those. That's a great point. I'm glad you pointed that out because, yeah, if it's all read-only, ideally, we don't have to go in there and rescan all the time, right? right? And of course, yeah, SHA hashes to mean nothing to me. So a lot of times looking, staring at API stuff doesn't mean a whole lot. And and I think that's one of my pet peeves is, you know, a lot of times these tools, I don't, they're not actionable to me, right? Like I, I do a thing. I get back a bunch of information and I don't know what to do with it. Whether it's an SBOM or whether it's a CVE vulnerability list or I don't know, whatever other scanner possible information could come out of there. They all provide a ton of information that I'm, is it going to change my behavior? Is it going to change my ability to go to my manager and say, we have zero CVEs found on our production servers. Like, you know, that's an amazing day that I want to go brag about to my boss. But like, how do I get there? That's always a tough it's always a tough sell. I think there's a question, Amazon Linux images, and maybe some of the support Wolfie for, would have for that. But to me, Wolfie, it would be, tell me if I'm wrong, like Wolfie would be the thing I would use instead of that, right? Like I wouldn't use their base images anymore. I would use Wolfie base images. It probably depends on exactly which Amazon Linux stuff you're talking about. Amazon has AMIs with Amazon Linux that boot up on the VM or to get you into your container. So if you run like startup an EC2 instance, it's going to have Amazon Linux on it. And then from there, you might have Docker and then you still need to put something inside of the Docker daemon or inside of the container. Yeah. I think they also do have like Amazon Linux container images. So yeah, you would use Wolfie instead of that. A good example is like Bottle Rocket. That's Amazon's like super lightweight OS for booting up into a container D or container runtime environment. That's the thing that runs inside of Firecracker or some other virtual machine or VM instance. So you'd, if you have you know, Bottle Rocket or Flatcar Linux or something like that running on the host, then you would run Wolfie inside of the container runtime on that. So it's somewhat complementary of a replacement for once you get inside of the container. Yeah. I, I can see the complexity of people thinking about, okay, how do I get my images to take advantage of these things? And yeah, base images are going to have to change. In fact, one of the things that got me excited, people who have been here before know I have an opinion about Alpine. I love the low CVE count of Alpine. I love the, I, but it's got rough edges, right? Like old packages aren't on the package managers. I have a hard time, you know, keeping things building over that are aging. And 
I've had numerous production outages because of changes with using Musil instead of glibc and just some of the little quirks around Alpine and BusyBox that are just what I would say maybe edge case scenarios. And one of the things that excited me about it was you said you support both C and Musil. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, I used to say it as an acronym. I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. So could you tell people like the significance of that? I'm not the super nerdy guy into exactly the difference between all of those, but like how is this different than maybe just a stock Alpine image? Yeah, so the Musil and glibc are two common libc implementations, probably the two biggest ones out there. libc is kind of this shim layer, for folks that don't know quite what it is, it's this shim layer that interacts with the actual kernel or the operating system. The programs are somewhat portable across Linux, Unix, you know, these other POSIX compatible operating systems, because they don't talk to the kernel directly for the most part. They use a libc implementation to do all of that. And there's a few different libc's and there's a whole specification that explains how libc's are supposed to operate called the POSIX specification. But as all specifications go, some things are underdefined, some things are overdefined. You follow all the rules, even the ones that conflict with the other rules. And so they're not as swappable as you would think. And so yeah, Musil is an implementation that's in Alpine. It's very small, it's lightweight, it doesn't have all of the backwards compatibility stuff inside of it that glibc does. But unfortunately, it's not as common as glibc in the wild today. And so it's one of these cases where a lot of the things that are implementation defined, or maybe even in violation of the specification, depending on exactly what you're looking at, are really just understood to be bugs when, you know, even though some of them might not be. The reality is that you want to have for the most part, bug for bug compatibility with glibc if you want to you know, run the majority of applications out there today. So I'm guessing that's some of the stuff you ran into with Alpine. There are benefits to using Musil, but it does come with a lot of those rough edges. And so we support both. And actually, glibc is kind of the primary build target that we have in Multi right now. So that's why I said we kind of a combination of Debian, Distrolis, and Alpine, where you know, we add glibc support to all the packages that we build. Yeah, it sounds like it could be the most universal image base that I've ever used. Where do people get started with Wolfie? So it sounds like there's a base image they can start with. You mentioned building without Docker. Is that true for my own images? Like, can I build a, my Node.js app into an image on top of Wolfie without needing Docker build? It depends on the programming language. Okay. You know, there's For Node, maybe, you know, there, there are a couple tools out there now that folks are working on. The challenge there is a lot of the node dependencies also have native code inside of them. And so if you're trying to do an NPM install on your Mac, yeah, we could turn that into a Docker image for you, but it might not work if you've got some C libraries that haven't been cross-compiled correctly or something. Like right. That. There's some techniques you can do, but not aware of any node ones that are that far along there. Yeah. Uh, but for Go or Java, for example, there are actually some really good tools that let you take your application code and stick that onto an existing base image without Docker, just running natively. So that's the, the Co or Ko tool for Go. If you're building a Go application, you should just stop what you're doing and switch to use Ko or Co for the builds. <laughs> it's amazing. And then Jib for Java, J-I-B or Java Image Builder can do the same thing for Java apps. And there's a few others for different programming languages. Uh, but for our base images themselves, we use AppCo, kind of named after Co, but APKO. Um, which, because the packages are all built statically and cross-compile and there aren't crazy init scripts that run at install time or anything, we just grab those packages, the ones for the right platform, stitch those together using your containers are basically just tarballs and JSON at the end of the day, mm -hmm. um, and stitch together those tarballs in that JSON and get you your runnable image directly from that YAML file. So if you want to get started, for the most part, you should just grab a built image. So they're all sitting in our registry and you can find the links in that GitHub organization. 
But yeah, if you've got a, if you just want to run Nginx, we have a full Nginx image that you can just grab. You can see the CVE counts and daily builds and everything on that one. Or if you have your own application, then you could just take your Docker file, switch the from line, and the rest should just work. So our product chain guard images is we want to take the burden off corporations dealing with this. So we offer kind of support packages, SLAs around patching, we rebuild nightly, and then, yeah, trying to relieve some of the burden off folks. So the chain guard images organization on GitHub is the instructions and a set of images built by Wolfie and these other APKO and Melange tools. Is that? Yeah, these are all the different images we built from here. This is all of the code we need. So you're adding package repositories, you put the packages themselves you want there, and that's it. We set up the groups, set up environment variables, that kind of thing. And then you do an APKO build on this YAML file and tell it where to put it and you get your image. You can point this at the Wolfie repositories or you know, standard stock Alpine repositories. This is actually really cool stuff. I'm a little quiet because I'm thinking like, how am I going to, how am I going to use this on my next project? So this is really cool. And I want, and I'm just actually surprised why we haven't had something that is this well thought out. You know, why did it take eight years of the Docker world for us to figure some of this stuff out? I think, I don't know, we're set, we're all set in our ways. I'm going to, I'm going to answer my own question. Can you talk a bit about the new VXTL? Is that how I'm going to say that? VXTL? <laughs> Excel tool and how you see it being used in a secure SDLC. We were trying to come up with all the different pronunciations we could for this one just to make it extra controversial. And you just came up with a new yes. one on your first try. No, yes. Vextel. Perfect. That's what I'm going to go with from now on. Vextel. I've um, said it on the internet. So it's now an official way perfect. because it's now it's on the internet forever. So it's fine. Vextel. Awesome. Yes. Right, how do you say it? How do you say it? No, I'm, this is it for me now. This is it. Vex cuddle, Vex control. You know, there's a lot. Vex yeah, so uh, Vex CTL, something like that. Vex is a new emerging standardy thing, whatever you want to call it. it. Stands for it was named for vulnerability exchange, and I like to think of it as complementary to SBOMs. And so SBOMs are starting to come. They're showing up in government regulations. They're going to be here. Docker added the SBOM tool, etc. And they're great, right? SBOMs are awesome. They give you transparency and all of the dependencies inside of your code. Then the first thing anybody that gets an SBOM do obviously is scan it with something like Sneak or a different scanner and then get, you know, 500 or a thousand vulnerabilities back and just be absolutely terrified. So they ask their vendor for software. The vendor gives them software. They ask their vendor for the SBOM. Vendor gives them the SBOM. And then they just start complaining and sending tons of emails to the vendor saying, why isn't this patch? What are all these things doing? And like, so transparency is coming. Transparency is good, but that's kind of going to be the drawback here because the vulnerability scans are so noisy and, you know, it's no one person's fault. The national vulnerability database doesn't always contain good information. A lot of the vulnerabilities in there are noisy and not that important. And so VEX is kind of the answer to that problem is how I like to think about it. A vendor, in addition to the SBOM information, can provide a VEX feed or a VEX document or a set of VEX documents that have a list of all of the vulnerabilities that scanners show in that package and then their evaluation of it. And so when a CV gets found in an image, the vendor can look at that, triage it and say, oh, that one doesn't affect us for X, Y, Z reason, and then publish that in a feed. So if you take your image, the SBOM, the sneak feed or whatever vulnerability scanner you're using, and then the VEX feed from the vendor, you should be able to get down to only the vulnerabilities you actually care about, provided the vendor is hmm. sending those things to you. So VEX is, I think, the first tool to actually publish and allow you to consume and to join that data with your CVE feeds. Very cool. Okay, so we've got secure images. We've got some other tooling. We've got this enforced product that people can sign up for and get a demo. Is there any sort of, we're wrapping up the show a little bit, but I wanted to give some like 
Are there any hot takes? Are there any next actions for people or things they should? I mean, obviously, swap all your images out for a Wolfie-based image and, you know, put everything declaratively in YAML. Like, that's, I, I can get that's the uh, subtitle for the show. But uh, what else? Give me something else. Well, one thing to call out is the Chain Guard Academy on our site. Like, we realize mm -hmm. this is a really complex space and it's complicated to understand if we're talking about physical supply chains or software supply chains. There's a lot of terminology, a lot of acronyms. So we, we launched a Chain Guard Academy right off our homepage to, to help explain some of these topics, work through the open source projects that we've mentioned today. Always interested in making improvements, of course, and getting feedback on here. But yeah, just a shout out for the Academy. Because uh, I think there's a lot of awareness. It's like, like you said in the beginning, like engineers just want to build their feature. They don't want to think about security until they have to. I think one of our jobs at ChainGuard is to make sure the CISOs don't have to testify in front of Congress. So this is on their minds. They do have to, they, yeah. <laughs> they do have to worry about this. The, the government is actually, I've been, been so surprised how quickly some of the new regulation is coming down the pipeline and recommendations from the government. So there's going to be lots of companies that don't have a choice but to start thinking about these things. So yeah, just a shout out for ChainGuard Academy where we try to provide a bunch of resources for people to kind of learn a bit more about the space. Yeah, that's great. I think that it's still hard. I've used a couple of these tools in the sort of the supply chain SBOM industry over the years. And it's, I still struggle with how to explain to people every step that they need along the way from their git commits all the yeah. way to production deployments right and it's a tough topic and it's not like we all just get one, like no one has really made the docker run version of supply chain security and not that we're all looking for that but i feel like everybody's setups are so different that it you know you mentioned on their website and let me i'm gonna finish my thought here <laughs> you mentioned on your website there's actually a link for or at the top on their products there's this professional services stuff and i actually thought that like, well, that's the real value to me because whatever I'm going to do with these tools, I likely don't know everything. And there's so many pitfalls, I feel like, so many potential areas where I will miss out on that part of my supply chain security. Because, okay, I put an image scanner in, but I have no idea how to validate images in production, or I have no idea how to be certain that the Git repo commit is actually what's in the image. And there's so many of these steps here where it's, I don't know what the right steps are so that teams can feel like, so that people don't end up in front of Congress. Do you find this where like people are trying to implement this and they, a lot of them, because they're so different, it's hard to just get one universal tool that solves all these steps and you end up with the consulting path for a lot of your customers? Yeah. So a lot of co companies have reached out and just like, where do we get started? How do we help yeah. out? And so we've done like risk assessments for them. It falls under the professional services thing, have, you know, kind of help look at their setups and their infrastructure and give some guidance on places to start. A lot of the frameworks like uh, the SSDF is one that came out and Salsa is another one um, that's about uh, largely around like build, like supply chain integrity. So hardening down your build system. So a lot of good frameworks out there that people can take today and start kind of try to map and see how well they're doing or give them kind of a roadmap of sorts of what they should be tackling next in this space. But yeah, we offer some professional services to help kind of kickstart the journey companies. Yeah. That whole, like, what do I do first? And then how do I get to the finish line? And where is that finish line for me is I always find a very nebulous path and I always need help. So I'm glad, yeah. that, I'm glad that these tools are existing, especially the Academy, because I think like we all want to think we're good at security. Like none of us want to really think we're horrible at it, especially those of us that are talking about on the internet constantly. 
And yet I, f- I still feel like I don't have a recommended consistent pattern and tool set for people, especially for my customers. So we need more of this. We need more of this. I'm, and I'm looking forward to more in the Academy. Is the Academy documentation? Are there videos there? Yeah, it's a mix of all of the above right now. We have the product documentation on there, tutorials. Uh, we try to pull in some of the open source stuff and weave that that's things in. And I think there's a couple of like crash courses on like the six source stuff and things you can try out within the terminal right from the right from Oh, good. The yeah. Yeah, very cool. I mean, we've been, the word six store has been thrown around for years in the Kubernetes community, but I think I'm ready for us to get to the point where like, that's just a, like, these are tools and processes that we all are generally understanding. We all eventually, you know, we started the, the container world where we didn't even understand how software needed to be deployed really with containers, right? Like, how do you get it on my, how do I get on my servers and how do I repeatedly deploy it in a predictable way? And I feel like we're starting to get, you know, wherever that bell curve is, we're starting to get to a place where people feel like they've got a pattern for deploying that's pretty consistent across CIs and whatnot. And we have, and we're all following that general idea of build, test, validate, approve and ship or whatever. And I, I don't feel like we're that as an industry, I feel like there's so much more for us to grow in terms of all these tools and how there should be a default set of tools and processes that every team that's deploying to Kubernetes or containers in general should have. And I'm pretty dumb on it myself. So I'm glad I'm having people like you on this show. All right. So ChainGuard Academy, I'm definitely going to recommend that to people and to check that out. Do you have a YouTube channel? I'm trying to remember. Is there other resources that you can share? Dan is Um, huge on TikTok. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Finally, a solid TikTok startup in the Kubernetes space. We, We needed you for so long. Yeah, I would start with start by following our Twitter. We post all the good stuff on YouTube okay. and TikTok and everything there. So that is Twitter slash chainguard underscore dead. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone, for being here. This has been a great show. Thank you, Dan and Kim, for being on here with me. And hopefully next time I'll have you on, we can do a walkthrough of making an image with Wolfie or something like that and actually doing some of this cool stuff once but congratulations on the launch by the way everyone you can see their twitter handles below you can follow them you can follow chainguard underscore dev on twitter as well thanks everyone see you soon thanks so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode